So welcome everybody. Uh, I'm Peter Hawley. I'm with the Frontier Center for Public Policy. This is a classic topic on the frontier of public policy. A very difficult topic, very controversial topic. Uh, we're delighted to have somebody who uh, talks about good policy as, a, as opposed to good politics. Before I introduce uh, Martha, though, I'd like to introduce a few people. Uh, the chairman of uh, the Frontier Center, Wayne, if you want to just wave. We also are delighted to have the newly elected leader of the Manitoba Liberal Party, Rana Bakari. This is a very difficult topic, and if you are a student of public policy, uh, you've heard of the issue of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. Uh, the producer interests in the status quo are highly motivated to preserve the existing system. I remember handing out a quota back in 1971. Cost was zero. Those quotas today are worth a lot of money. I believe the dairy quota is worth over $30,000 per cow today. Uh, on the flip side, the consumers are not well organized. They are dispersed. They do not uh, argue effectively against policies like, uh, like supply management. And uh, we have dealt with that in several papers at Frontier. And there were some copies of it at the back. Here's one, uh, Supply Management Cartel by Eric Merkley, which was published last year. It got quite a lot of coverage. Uh, my favorite one comes from the early days of Frontier Center and it talks about what Australia did to move away from a, uh, a regulated monopoly model like the one we have now in Canada to one based on uh, markets. And very quickly, I don't know whether you're going to get into this, Martha, essentially they put in a tax, temporary tax, which was used to buy out the quota. And uh, today, Australia has a very uh, uh, successful dairy industry. I also have uh, lots of contacts into New Zealand, and I just sort of throw it out there, a country with three and a half million people, uh, population of Alberta, is the world's largest exporter of uh, dairy products around the world. And uh, I would argue that we just simply can't uh, do anything like that based on a model that was set up back in the 70s that everybody, a lot of people would admit needs substantial rethinking. I think that uh, the policy will be phased out at some point and what we, we need is, is more discussion and we need uh, politicians who are prepared to talk about good policy and not good politics. So with that I am uh, going to briefly introduce uh, Martha Hall Finley. Martha is an entrepreneur, lawyer and politician from Toronto. She is the Chief Legal Officer of Endstream LP, the mobile payments joint venture among Rogers, Bell and TELUS. She is the former Member of Parliament for Willowdale in Ontario and she recently ran for the leadership of the Liberal Party of Canada federally. She's also an Executive Fellow with the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary and she released a paper in support of the abolishment of supply management back in uh, June last year, I guess, and, and uh, I think we do have some copies of this. All these are available on, a, on uh, certainly on the University of Calgary's website and on, on the Frontier website. 
And with that, Martha, it's a pleasure to meet you and welcome. <laughs> So thank you very, very much, and thank you very much for the invitation. Um, I also want to thank the taxi drivers who gave me such a lovely tour of Winnipeg over the last hour. Um, anyway, so my apologies for being a bit late to everybody, and thank you also to the lovely young lady who said she was going to save my lunch and keep it warm. Um, can I just ask uh, a bit of a show of hands who here is in a supply-managed egg sector? Okay, so questions are going to be fun. Um, and <clears throat> how many of you would be dairy specifically? Couple. Okay. So, ad advance warning most of my paper that I did uh, last year focuses on dairy, prob mostly because they're, it, it's a far bigger sector, mostly because it affects far more, uh, a far greater number of farmers. But um, uh, I am looking forward to the discussion. I, I, when I came in, um, we talked about the fact that there, there would be some people from uh, probably at least a couple of the supply manager sectors, and you know, was I okay with that? And I have to tell you, I've, since doing the paper last year, I've had some pretty fun encounters, and um, I'll tell you one story about last year running in the leadership campaign. We did a, a day in PEI, and those of you who've ever been to PEI or from PEI know that you can actually cover pretty much the whole province in a day. And we had 13 stocks, 12 of which were Tim Hortons actually. But in a campaign like that, you put the schedule on the internet, it's all, all laid out. And of the 13 stocks, we were welcomed by local dairy farmers at 11 of them. And I have to say, almost everybody was extremely civil. A couple not so much. Um, but I was very pleased because on several occasions, the uh, dairy representatives who were there came up to me afterwards and said, you know, we obviously really disagree with you, but it's really clear you also know your stuff. So I took that as a really big compliment and have had some really, really interesting uh, discussions with, uh, in particular, members of the dairy industry <coughs> over the last while. So to just summarize a little bit, I'm sure most, of, if not everybody here, understands supply management, but I do want to talk a little bit um, about what it is. It is a system that shields the production and sale of, and if it's okay with, with you, I will focus my numbers on dairy for the same reason, but it is the protection of the dairy, poultry, and egg sectors of our uh, Canadian agriculture sector. Um, it only protects 6% of Canadian farmers, and this is a challenge that I often get. You know, People will say, you're anti-farmer. I say, that's nonsense. I'm actually very pro. I actually spent many years of my life growing up on an apple orchard in southern Ontario. Um, not a supply-managed uh, sector. But um, when you look at the actual numbers of supply-managed farmers in this country, it's really only about 6%. And of the remaining 94% of Canadian farmers, about 90% of those grow or produce beef, pork, grains, oil seeds, pulses like soybeans. Interestingly enough, all of which would benefit from much greater access to, in particular, the rapidly growing emerging uh, economies. 
So from a trade perspective, um, when somebody says that uh, dismantling supply management is anti-farmer, to the extent that that can get, help us get access from a trade perspective to some of those markets, it's actually something very, very positive for most of Canadian farmers, by far the majority of Canadian farmers. In the 1970s, it's hard to get the exact numbers, but there were approximately 145,000 dairy farms. By last year, 2012 actually, when we had the most recent numbers, um, that number had dropped to barely more than 12,000. So a massive, massive decrease. Um, one of the, well, I'll, I'll, talk, I'll talk in a little bit about some of the assumptions um, in terms of what supply management can or cannot do. Um, the protection works by closing the system. So as, as again, if I'm repeating myself or, you know, supply management 101 for those of you who already know, my apologies. But the way it works is the system is closed. Um, the prices are determined, so again, dairy. So the prices for dairy are in effect determined by the dairy commissions, um, provincial, federal cooperation in that regard. The prices are determined based on what the uh, participants determine are the costs of production plus a margin for, um, uh, well, for profit. To, so in effect, a cost plus arrangement. And I have to say, I used to work in construction many years ago, and when you can get a cost plus gig, it's not a bad one to get. Um, the prices are also protected by tariffs. And so other than a very, very small amount of product that is allowed in the country, the rest is uh, uh, in effect held out by 200, 250, 300% tariffs. Um, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the arrangements in the CETA negotiation and what that means for cheese in particular. But for the most part, the prices are protected by having 250 to 300% tariffs. Um, when you have a protected market and it's cost plus, then a lot of people want to get into it. Not surprising. And that's how the quota was developed because in the 1970s when the their supply management was brought in for dairy, um, the existing farmers got their quota uh, for free. And as was mentioned, quota is now averaging across the country around $30,000 a cow. And of course that doesn't actually include the cost of the cow. Um, that's a massive increase. And the system that we now have um, is, has been likened to a cartel, obviously work done here at the center. It would never be accepted in any other environment. Um, I work in the wireless uh, telecom business. I've worked in, in wireless on and off for over 20 years now. And given the recent events this summer, um, just as an aside, I don't think I've ever seen a federal government use taxpayer money to slam industry leaders across the country. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but can you imagine if somebody came out and said, well, we're going to say, you know what, this, are, this whole battle with Rogers, Bell, and Telus, you know, it's, it's just not, we want to end it. Can you imagine if the Prime Minister's office said, you know, we're going to end it. We actually like these guys. And we like these guys so much that we're going to actually help in terms of the pricing. And those high prices you pay for your cell phone bills, 
we're going to we actually want to make sure that those prices are cost plus. And so to get those prices, we're going to set up a board of people to determine what those prices should be. But the experts really who know about wireless telecom pricing really are the people at Rogers Bell and Tele. So we're going to populate the board that determines the prices with representatives from the three companies and we're going to let them come up with the prices. Um, we're going to close it to, to outside investors, outside participants, and because, as I said earlier about supply management, if you have a business that has guaranteed pricing, guaranteed profit margin, and is a closed system, it's a pretty good gig. And so we need to make sure that we um, don't allow other participants to play. And so if anybody else in this country wants to provide wireless telecom services, they're going to have to buy quota from Rogers Bell Hotels. Could you imagine... That, I mean, it would be totally preposterous. But that's what we have in dairy, poultry, and eggs still in this country. And to be fair, when it was brought in, there were awfully good reasons for it. And it was in an environment in the 1970s where governments were around the world were much more interventionist-minded, you know? And it wasn't, it was done for a whole lot of good reasons. As I said, there were far, far more dairy farmers really challenged with price fluctuations um, and, there were, and there were very good reasons to do it. And there were issues in terms about food standards and, and food security at the time as well. But those factors are no longer at play. And so when we look at the problems that we have now, so consumer prices are far, far higher than they should be. You know, whatever the variety of economic analyses have, 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 um, have uh, come out with the estimates of at least you know, $300 for the average family more just for dairy. Um, you know, it would obviously be more than that if you, when you add in dairy, poultry, and eggs. Um, interestingly enough, I find from a policy perspective, um, a lot of liberals and NDP who support this don't do the math because it's in fact regressive. And the people who suffer the most from high consumer prices tend to be lower income families, especially with young kids. There have been a couple studies done since my paper, in fact, uh, I think both, both based in Nova Scotia, but studying the, um, the behaviors of low income families, which uh, in this case were in fact mostly single parent families with small children and their food consumption behaviors over the course of, of, the studies went on for a very long time, but they included not just the stats, but interviews with the parents and the challenges. And it was striking what happens when you get halfway through a welfare month. That big two liter thing of Pepsi costs a lot less than milk. And potato chips cost a lot less than cheese. And it was really quite striking, really quite striking. So it is a problem in terms of consumer pricing. And every time somebody says, wait a minute, our prices aren't any lower, I say, then why do we have two, 250, 300% tariffs? So my answer is anybody who says our prices aren't any higher, I say, okay, get rid of the tariff. The, the, two, the two positions just are simply not uh, consistent. From a trade perspective, um, uh, we have known for years the challenges that supply management has posed in our, uh, you know, our multilateral tra uh, trade negotiations and more, more recently on the bilateral ones. People say to me, well, that's nonsense, Martha. Look at all the trade agreements that Canada's been able to sign. You know, supply management hasn't kept us from signing any agreements. Um, no, perhaps not. 
But when you go, and I used to work in international business and international trade, and every time you go to a trade negotiation table, it is just that. It is a negotiation. And when you arrive at the table with one hand tied behind your back, you have to give up on something else. So any of you who are paying attention to the European trade negotiations over the last couple of years, you will have known there are a, big, a number of big issues. Supply management was only one of them. Autos, pharmaceuticals, beef too, yes. So there are a number of very significant issues on the table. Subnational infrastructure procurement was another very tough one. What happens in those negotiations is if you stay parked with one that one issue that you're not going to give up on, you have to give on others. So I would be, you know, I wasn't at the table in the seat of negotiations, but it would have been very interesting to see what we gave in pharma and what we gave on subnational procurement in order to protect supply management. Um, we also know that um, in past multilateral negotiations, like we, we know the Doha round is, is done, um, I probably shouldn't say done. My trade people say never say done. But for all intents and purposes, nothing's happening in terms of multilateral trade negotiations right now. What's very interesting to those of us who've been studying it for the last uh, number of decades is that earlier multilateral rounds, Canada didn't stand out so much because the Europeans had massive ag subsidies. You know, the, the producer support estimate in the 1980s for Europe was around 46%. Interestingly enough, somebody was challenging me on Twitter the other day saying European subsidies are 46%. And I said, yeah, that was 1986. Um, the PSE for Europe is now down to about 15%, I think, uh, 17%. What's very interesting is that Canada's PSE also dropped. Canada is down, down to about 15%. The Americans are down to 12%. What's really striking, however, is that when you take the European numbers, the Canadian numbers, the American numbers, almost all of Canada's agricultural, um, the, the, the non-supply managed sectors of Canada's agriculture industry um, has dropped, the, the level of subsidy, the level of support has dropped dramatically. The PSE for all the non-supply managed ones are, is almost nil, um, which is terrific from those of us who are trade-oriented. We're way back up because of only those three sex sectors, the 6% of Canadian farmers. In Europe, their numbers are relatively across the board. They're a little heavily uh, uh, higher in terms of support of poultry. And in the United States, sugar is a big part of their number. Um, so, in fact, you have in the United States PSE of 12%. It's already lower than Canada's. It's massively lower when it comes to dairy, poultry, and eggs. So, when you have the arguments that, well, everybody subsidizes, everybody's coming to the table with the same problem, you could have actually made that argument a couple of decades ago. Not anymore. So, that brings us to the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. morning. That would have been better if that had been beer, but that's okay. Um, so Trans-Pacific Partnership. So yes, Canada has been invited to the table, but anybody in this room, if you have had any conversations with the Australians, the New Zealanders, even the Americans who know they're going to have to change what they do in terms of dairy uh, somewhat, the answer is overwhelming. Yes, you've been invited to the table. 
if you think you're going to sign this sucker and keep supply management, you're in for a very interesting challenge. Um, part of that is because New Zealand and Australia were among the first to um, uh, put together the TPP, and New Zealand and Australia did actually get rid of all of their protections for uh, dairy in particular um, uh, over 10 years ago. And so, you know, they come to the table with a pretty good argument that says, look, we've done it. Um, we want a very ambitious trade agreement. We don't want to get bogged down the way DOA did. Um, and an ambitious in trade parlance means clean, as in no exceptions. And so um, when people talk about, well, we've been included in the TPP, so what's the problem? There's a big difference between being invited to the table and actually um, uh, being able to sign. And remember this, the earlier numbers. 90% of Canadian farmers actually produce the very products that would benefit from access to those markets. It's fascinating to watch. You see this incredible rise of middle-income people in China and India. And these are it's like not just millions, we're talking billions of people, right, who can afford more than rice now. And the demand for dairy products, interestingly enough, the demand for beef, the demand for pork, the demand for all of these other things that Canadians grow and produce so well is going through the roof. But until we can actually ensure free access for our farmers for, uh, into those markets, we're missing huge opportunities. So <clears throat> I'm just going to talk a little bit about a couple of the other problems. Um, one is the exporting of jobs that we do. So we have processors here in Canada who, when they are dealing with higher priced inputs, aren't that pro uh, troubled by producing and processing for that limited Canadian market. Right? And in some cases you have margins that are you know, relatively comfortable so you can do it. But any of the food processors that want and do compete internationally, they have to set up plants elsewhere. So we have a number of dairy processors who've set up in, in South America and different places. Um, the news just over the last couple of weeks about Saputo's efforts to buy into Australia. Well, there are reasons for that. You know, We have great people in this country. We have great people doing great uh, dairy processing, food processing work. But we are setting up plants outside of Canada so that we can compete internationally. Um, and then, you know, just fundamentally, you have consumer challenges, you have, um, you know, especially from a regressive perspective, you are exporting jobs, we're really sacrificing our opportunities from a trade perspective. Um, it's really hard to come up with any arguments that say we should keep supply management, except for a few, and I'm going to touch on each one that I hear all the time. One is we don't want hormone-laced milk coming in from the United States. Well, I don't either. Well, interestingly enough, Europe didn't want hormone-laced beef into Europe either, and so they said in the trade in, in negotiations, we just don't want the beef that has hormones in it. Well, there's no reason why Canada could say exactly that. It's not the economic system of supply management that provides this food security that we want. We just say, we don't want that milk. You Americans, if you want to export milk into Canada, then make sure you sell us just the stuff that doesn't have the hormones. Okay. Next one is, well, the Americans subsidize their milk production. They do. 
And as I noted before with my numbers in the PSE, the subsidization is significantly less than the subsidy that we provide to Canadian dairy farmers. Don't even try that it's not a subsidy argument with me. Um, it is not government money that supports the dairy industry. We know that. It is consumers with high prices, as I had described. Last time I checked, we're all the same taxpayers. So another alternative to the American argument is to say, then you know what? Let's do a really thorough objective analysis of what the American subsidies are. And yeah, we can keep some of those tariffs. And if we can show that the American subsidies are here, then in order to make sure we have a level playing field, let's figure out an appropriate tariff for American hormone-free milk. Not that difficult to do. And as I said earlier with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Americans are also aware they're going to have to make some changes. We need to keep the system to protect the family farm. I've heard that a lot too. Except for the fact that the rate of consolidation in the agricultural sector across all aspects of the sector has been massive. Anybody here knows, you know, even the non-farming folks, everybody knows that we have far, far fewer farmers now than we did in the past. And the rate of consolidation has been high for decades. So when I said in the 1970s we had 145,000, 140,000 dairy farmers and we only have barely more than 12, well, interestingly enough, that's true for all of the other sectors. What's really interesting, and there are whole sorts of reasons for that, but what's really interesting is that the rate of consolidation has actually been higher in the supply-managed sectors than almost all of the others. It's not a big difference, but interesting because when somebody says we need supply management to protect the family farm, I could turn around and say... I don't know, maybe supply management has, had, has played a part in a higher rate of consolidation than we have in the other sectors. You know, I have enough people coming at me with enough arguments, I'm not going to do that. But at the very least, you cannot say that supply management protects the family farm. The most important aspect of the work that um, has been done in this field has been to highlight that there are, in fact, really good options to move forward on a win-win basis. And so, yes, you mentioned Australia. So I, I mentioned also that new, both New Zealand and Australia got rid of their protection for dairy uh, over 10 years ago. New Zealand was never supply-managed, which is a, another... Uh, a lot of people don't actually understand that, that New Zealand never had supply-management. New Zealand, uh, the dairy industry, is almost entirely done by co-op. Um, and New Zealand, anybody look, you know, pays attention to the New Zealand industry knows that there's, in fact, now one massive cooperative called Fonterra and a number of smaller ones. And they have legal, uh, they have rules, they have uh, laws in New Zealand that deal with the fact of the size of Fonterra and, and how that relationship works with the other co-ops. But the cooperative system is very, very interesting. And we do actually have some co-ops in the industry here in Canada. They're just not that big. Uh, and, and obviously still work within the supply managed sector. Um, but New Zealand basically just said we're stopping subsidization. Um, it was, uh, and, and subsidization of all of their agriculture was taking up such a huge portion of their annual government budget that when they actually explained this to the people of New Zealand, that this was how much money was it going 
huge chunk of all of their taxpayer money, in effect, was going to uh, agricultural subsidies. There was a very strong political will uh, in New Zealand to, to do what they did. Australia was quite different. And there are issues because uh, the supply management system in Australia varied a little bit province by province. And there were certain challenges because of the level of fluid milk sales as opposed to processed uh, dairy products. But ultimately, the decision was done in Australia at, at the urging, in fact, of a number of members of the dairy industry to get rid of their supply management system. And you said the word tax. I find it really interesting because um, the word tax has just such negative connotations, right? But what Australia did was in fact use the very system of supply management. They used that system to pay for the transition and the support and the assistance that was, that was in fact paid to the dairy industry. So pardon me with my gesturing, but it's not going to work when it's on a tape. But anybody listening is just going to have to picture me standing at the front of the room, you know, juggling my hands. In Australia, this was the supply managed price of milk. Um, that's my hand up high. <laughs> the world price was here. What they did was not a tax. They simply set up the system that for eight years, they imposed a price of a, an additional price on milk of 11 cents a liter, 11 Australian cents a liter. And so with the supply management system, of course it's not a government subsidy, it's consumers who pay the difference. But overnight, Australia got rid of all the international barriers. They got rid of all of their tariffs. But rather than dropping right down to the world price, with the 11 cents a liter, and it was charged at the retail level, so it affected everybody, imports as well as domestic. That amount of money over eight years was sufficient to pay for the compensation, the buyouts of the quota, the transition support services that they had established would be, um, was going to be necessary in Australia. So there is absolutely no reason why we can't do the same thing here in Canada. Use the system. I think it was it's brilliantly elegant and simple. Use the system to actually provide the compensation that we need to because we will need to. We understand that. Compensation, transition support, absolutely critical in this equation, but it can be done. What that formula is, I haven't done. I know there's been some really good work is underway actually at the conference board. Um, I know at the School of Public Policy we're following up on a number of these issues too. Um, 30,000, but you know, one of the fallacies is somebody says well, we have X number of cows and you multiply that by $30,000. That's an awful lot of money. Well, wait a second. I don't think you'd have to pay a farmer who got his quota in 1973 or 1971 for nothing, 30 grand a cow. Now, if you have some young guy or woman who's gotten into the business and leveraged themselves to the hilt to acquire $30,000 a cow quota, that compensation arrangement is going to be very different. So you are going to actually have to have a fairly complicated formula. And is it 11 cents a liter? We, would, we don't know yet. Is it eight years? We don't know yet. But there is an opportunity to do this on a win-win basis. And yes, we will lose some farmers. But remember my numbers about consolidation? We've been losing farmers for decades. You know? And with an appropriate compensation arrangement, then it can work. 
It has certainly worked in Australia. The industry in Australia has been flourishing. Um, there's a reason why Saputo wants to go to Australia. Um, anyway, um, there's some real opportunities there. I will finish off with our own success story here in Canada that has proved that we can do this. Um, I don't know how much uh, people in Winnipeg would remember, but I'm from Ontario, southern Ontario. Remember the apple orchard thing, right? A lot of um, uh, great producers in the day. And when Canada said that we're going to be negotiating a free trade agreement with the United States, man, the sky was going to fall. Now, I don't know if you also remember what kind of wine we produced. Go baby duck. It was plunk. It was awful stuff, right? But we had wine producers raving up and down, my God, the end of the world. And so, yes, there was arrangement. There was an arrangement done. There were arrangements done with the governments involved. Um, in effect, they ended up pulling out most of those vines and replacing them with, uh, with varieties that were actually going to work, um, given our climate, given what, might, what the market might be. And yes, there was compensation. And yes, there was transition assistance. And yes, we now have, in a trade environment that's far, far more open than what we had, we now make really good wine. And that sector has employed far, far more people, has generated far more revenue, and is now spreading all across the country, even PEI. See, there's hope for the dairy farmers in PEI. Um, nobody laughed at that. That was actually supposed to be sort of funny. Um, in any case, we've done it. We've proved that we can do it. Australia has proved that we can do it. Um, it is absolutely the right thing to do from a trade perspective. It is absolutely the right thing to do for the 90% of Canadian farmers who are bristling at this. And I will finally add the number of dairy farmers who have contacted me separately, terrified that it would be public because the level of intimidation is so high. The concerns are so high in some of these smaller uh, communities, but the number who have written uh, to me and said, thank you, carry on, this has to go, because I make really good milk, and we make really good cheese, and I want to be able to sell it, I want to be able to compete, I want to be able to sell it abroad. Finally, I'll just say where there's a will, there's a way. And the biggest single challenge that we've had on this file is that you have the Canadian Restaurant Association who have been vocal about this for a while. You have beef farmers who have been vocal about this. You have pork people, you have grain people, you have you know, all the people who've just undergone you know, the dismantling of the wheat board. A little more sensitive here. But a whole lot of different sectors across the country don't even get me started on the Ontario manufacturers. Or the... Um, you know, the chambers of commerce all around the country who are saying, we want more trade, we want to expand, we want this to happen. The problem that we have is that those voices are so spread out. You have, in contrast, um, the dairy lobby, which um, the most recent number I was given, and unfortunately I can't vouch for the number, because, as you can imagine, there are not a whole lot of people in the dairy lobby who are actually happy to talk with me. Um, but it's a number that I was given a while ago that the estimate is that the dairy lobby in Canada spends 80 to to $100 million 
lobbying. I don't know, how do, you, how do you tell those single parents in Nova Scotia who were participating in that study that that's um, a really good use of Canadian consumer money because that's where it comes from. So we have all these disparate voices who are saying we need to dismantle this. We have a very strong uh, lobby without question, um, but we also have something that is absolutely doable in 2013, given Canada's involvement and, and the opportunities for some of the really interesting international trade opportunities, it's something that simply has to be done. So I welcome any questions. What I would also love is that if there are other people in the room who agree with me and understand the need to actually pull some of these disparate voices together, any suggestions in that regard would be terrific. So thank you very much. Brenda's just going to go around the room and grab any questions that you've got and bring them up to me and I'll, uh, I'll read them in order. So I'll start with uh, what I've got from the front table here. So I'll just address them right sure. to Martha. Oh, yeah. oh uh, can everybody hear me right now? How about now? Good? Okay. Uh, so, Martha, as a liberal, how do you rationalize ending supply management when, in fact, it was set up by the Trudeau liberals in 1971? Oh, wow. Um, uh, there were a few things that the Trudeau government did that I didn't agree with. Um, wage and price controls. Remember those? Um, listen, by the political stripe is irrelevant in this discussion. And supply management actually is not uh, a partisan, should not be a partisan discussion at all. Um, you know, I'm a free trader. There are a lot of liberals who, in the day and even still now, don't actually want full open freight. There are quite a few who are still quite protectionist. Um, that's not where I come from. Um, I actually was not a member of a political party until the early 2000s. Um, and I was very specifically involved in a number of po uh, policy issues over those years and found that every party from time to time had some pretty good ideas. Um, so it was actually relatively recent that I took on a partisan label, um, but I can tell you there are an awful lot of liberals who aren't terribly happy with me, uh, given my supply management position. Um, I think you've already answered this, but maybe just briefly. Uh, would you compensate present quota holders? If so, how? Yes. So, yes. But obviously, as I described, you'd have to have a fairly complicated formula to determine what the right amounts would be, how long the system would need, um, and what formula would be appropriate for more recent quota acqu acquirers as opposed to earlier uh, quota acquirers. Sorry, I'm just uh, trying to read through this. Do you want my glasses? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that'll help much. Uh, one second, sorry. Uh, sorry, uh, what, are the, what are the political parties afraid of? Why does no party care about consumers? Wow. That's actually really fun for me in particular, given my comments earlier about the wireless industry, because um, every economic study that's been done on the wireless, the level of competition in the wireless sector in Canada has shown repeatedly that we actually have ample wireless competition. And, uh, you know, the, the studies that say, well, other countries that have four players um, and it, they actually are consolidating and usually there might be two big ones and two small ones and in Canada we tried, we tried with Microcell and ClearNet, we gave them subsidized set-asides and 
didn't work. And then 2008, we did it again. Um, there's a reason, you know, we're 35 million people, we're a huge country, there's only so much that we can support in terms of this. But in any case, I'm not here to make an argument for the, for the wireless industry, but more importantly to say that from a public policy perspective, when, when uh, the respected think tanks of those, who, uh, you know, objective economists are saying all of this, the current government, pro-consumer, that throne speech was extraordinary, right? You have this pro-consumer, pro-consumer, and I find it interesting politically because I, I spoke about supply management a little while ago and had a, an NDP colleague as kind of a responder and turned to him and said, um, put him on the spot actually, I said, so you know, on this consumer stuff, it's going to put you in a bit of a corner because the NDP and the Liberals, how can they possibly come out and say, we're anti-consumer? Right? So the political discourse has really changed in this country. What I find really, really interesting is that the, um, you know what the hell, I'll call it hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the current government, and it's not a partisan comment, trust me, because there are a lot of liberals who would love to keep, they say they'd love to keep supply management, but to say that we're pro-consumer on the one hand and so clearly not pro-consumer in terms of dairy, poultry, and eggs is, uh, is very interesting. <laughs> Um, what are the changes from the European free trade deal? So, if for those of you who were following um, the negotiations in CETA, you will know that supply management was actually a big issue for, uh, for the length of those negotiations. In the end, um, Canada allowed um, a, a 3.5% increase, 20,000 tons, uh, 17,000 tons, I think it was, we've allowed in another 20,000 tons of cheese. Until the deal was done, we actually had um, uh, an allowance of 17,000 tons of cheese. And so, of course, the headlines are, you know, Canada more than doubles the cheese, you know, the, the, uh, the cheese import from Europe. Well, yeah, but to put things into perspective, 17,000 tons amounted to a whopping 3% of total Canadian cheese consumption. And so bringing in another 20,000 tons brings that to a whopping 6.5% of the total Canadian cheese market. Um, what was interesting about that, though, is that it did come as a bit of a surprise. Um, I think there was a sense from and this, my discussions with a number of people in the dairy world that that was not actually expected, that... Um, it was more than they. It was more than they had thought. They felt that their the system would have been uh, continued to be fully protected. Now, of course, opening up a small percentage of the cheese market does absolutely nothing from a supply management perspective. All it does is we keep the system and allow a little bit more in from a, from a, from that perspective. But from a policy perspective, I'm very interested in this because, notwithstanding the the words from the conservative government. Um, ostensibly saying we support supply management. I also know that 99% of those MPs, including the Prime Minister, know that this has to go. And so just watching the dynamics behind the scenes is very interesting. So this is a, this is a really quick question. Just uh, what's the retail price difference between the Canada and the United States? It's not the questions that are, that it doesn't matter if the question's quick. The problem is whether the answer is quick. Um, if I actually pulled out a number right now, I'd probably get it wrong. Um, so I, I, it, it, I, it would be, I would have them in the paper um, from two years ago, but I don't actually know the exact differential. 
um, the differential between American and yeah. Canadian prices. Um, around with milk, my recollection was that it was about 150 percent different uh, to two percent to 200 percent. So uh, uh, one and a half in some cases, twice as much. The challenge that you have is you get people who say, well, wait a minute, I just crossed the border um, and I paid X for my milk. And, you know, somebody else will go to, um, you know, I'm from Toronto, go to Loblaws and they might be doing a loss leader on milk. And so they'll say, but, but look, I just got my three bags for, for a whole lot less than what you've said. You can't do it that way. You have to actually go by the U.S. Labor Census numbers, and you have to go with StatsCan numbers because you just can't do economic comparisons on a spot basis like that. What I will say as an answer to that question, see the problem, it's not the quick question, it's the answer. If we didn't have a significant price differential, then we wouldn't have had the headlines last summer of in the Windsor area, Southern Ontario, cheese smuggling ring busted. <laughs> Not drugs, cheese. Um, uh, there was another one actually just recently on cheese smuggling. One of the ones I found really interesting was the egg challenge in lower British Columbia. And the egg marketing board in BC um, for the longest time had been advertising, exhorting people of Vancouver and Surrey, don't drive across the border, buy eggs, support your local egg producers, right? Because guess what happens in Vancouver and Surrey and the lower, lower mainland there? People, it's, like, it's like the family thing to do on weekends. You know, they get this huge exodus, this whole driving across the border, and they buy three things. They buy eggs, they buy milk, and they buy gas. Now, I'm not completely sure why gasoline for your car is so much cheaper um, in the, in the, across the border. I don't actually think it's the carbon tax in BC, but that's, I think there's some other factors. But, um, but in any case, that's what people do. They go across the border. They drive across the border all the time to buy milk and eggs and gasoline. So the Egg Marketing Board that does all these ads support your local egg producers. The only challenge is that it was discovered a little while ago, and it was in the press in BC for a while, but it seemed to have died out, um, which I found very interesting too. But it was discovered that the largest single purchaser of those nasty American eggs turned out to be the BC market Egg Marketing Board. I'll just leave it at that. Got about seven here left, so this is one that could take like five hours or five seconds, hopefully more like five seconds. It's pretty broad, but for the most part, would you agree that most Canadian businesses operate in protected industries, e.g. banking, telecom, transportation, resources? Um, they're, they're regulated, but they're not necessarily protected. Um, so, so no, it's very different. I mean, you know, I'll go back to the, the telecom sector. We have foreign ownership restrictions, but my God, we have a government that's trying very hard to in introduce competition, even more competition artificially. Um, so it's actually quite the opposite in the wireless business. Um, banking, again, it's foreign ownership restrictions, but once you're here, it's pretty competitive. Uh, this, this one's pretty long. It's, there's a statement in favor of supply management, but then what, quest, what steps are required in order to accomplish this? Is it a federal issue, provincial issue, or both? What strategies would you take? 
Um, it has to be a combination, just simply because we have regulation of the system at the federal level and at the provincial level. So the system as it is now requires cooperation among those different uh, orders of government, so the solution would also require. Um, I'll just, there was one earlier uh, question about political parties and why are they afraid of, of doing this that I didn't, I don't think I, I really answered because we were talking about consumer. Um, a big part of the, my paper that I had done a year and a half ago, and you know, true confessions, most of the work was not original work. It was pulling together a lot of excellent work that had been done by a number of other economists and, and think tanks. Um, uh, the original part of the paper, which was very interesting to me, and one of the reasons I proceeded with it, because quite frankly, when I was in, in Ottawa, I had gotten so frustrated with all these MPs saying, listen, Martha, we know it needs to go. This is MPs from all parties, by the way. Martha, we know it needs to go, but we just can't afford the votes. Well, that's not why I got into politics. And my view is that if you know, if you feel strongly that there are policy things that need to be done, you need to do them. And... Um, so in my research, because I, I just had the sense that the votes weren't what we thought they were. The votes, the concerns just weren't what they were a number of decades ago. And so what we did in the paper is we took the Ag Census Division uh, maps and we superimposed the electoral map. And so that we were able to show of the 308 ridings how many supply managed farms were in each, each electoral district, how many non-supply managed farms there were. The results were astounding. Even of the top 15 ridings in the country that have um, top 15 as a number of dairy farms, in every single riding, there was at least twice, sometimes three, sometimes four more number of non-supply managed farms. So right away, I found that very, very interesting. Um, and I also did, what we also did, was analyze the election results. So we took those ridings, the, the top 15 in terms of number of dairy farmers, um, we took the 2008 election results and the 2011 election results, then used of all of those ridings, if like all hell broke loose and it was and doing away with supply management would be an absolute disaster and you raise the ire of all of everybody and you know, all the dairy farmers and their friends, um, what would have happened? The Conservatives would still have a majority government. When you actually looked at which of those writings had, weren't even were already held by a conservative, what the likely changes would be, it was really three or four writings, maybe five, maybe six actually now, um, which I found fascinating because I went in with a hypothesis that the votes, I just didn't think that there really were the votes that people were so worried about. Um, in the end, it turned out that I, I was astounded at how little um, the electoral concern needed to be. Uh, this one is about Australia, and um, it says that the Australian government announced an inquiry into the low price of, uh, of milk, um, so how can you claim that Australia has been a success? Because in any business, if you have that ability to actually do the investigation, that's what you want to have. It'll be interesting to see what the results are, but by all reports, of, obviously not all, because if, uh, you know, to the extent that somebody feels that there should be an inquiry, um, but, you know, I take a lot of that with a grain of salt because I've seen inquiries launched um, in order to make points. I've seen um, analyses done or reports done um, using very interesting numbers. So I, uh, you know, reserve judgment on that. But uh, to date, um, the, 
the economic analysis of the dairy industry has uh, suggested that it has been extraordinarily successful. And also, by the way, extraordinarily successful, much more than it was a decade ago in terms of their export opportunities. And proximity to China doesn't hurt, but... Okay, this one. This one's a really long statement than a question. So uh, the person states that significant shopping trips between Winnipeg and Minneapolis uh, reveal an 18 to 28 percent retail price difference. I, I assume that means lower in Minneapolis. Uh, I don't know who asked it. Probably because it is. Uh, do you really think that reducing farmer share from a dollar 27 to 98 cents of an 18.99 meal would make much of a difference? I, I, I just point out that again. Um, one, I think it would be better if our people were buying Canadian products right off the bat. Two, uh, if there really is such a smaller price differential, then let's get rid of the tariff because then we don't need 250 to 300%. Um, and third, I go back to my earlier point, you have to use national numbers across the board. You just can't do spot checks like that because it doesn't deal with loss leaders. It doesn't deal with the major chains that tend to be in the major centers. It doesn't deal with a whole lot of factors. Okay. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We're about to lose the room. So um, I just want to introduce our chair of the board, Wayne Anderson. And Wayne's got a gift that's tucked away down here for our speaker, Martha. So thank you, Martha, for coming up. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wow. Uh, is it too gross a pun to say thank you for the food for thought? <laughs> it's okay. We do the sacred cow thing all the time. Uh, very, very thought-provoking and stimulating uh, discussion, Martha. Thank you very much. And uh, I particularly uh, was taken by the point which you raised about how is it possible to be an advocate for the poor and support supply management. Uh, so very thorough and very stimulating presentation. Thank you very much. And we have a little book here for you that... Uh, Great. You, uh, you may find a little uh, <laughs> on the frontier in, in terms of uh, its subject matter. Uh, it's also very controversial. So thank you again. Well, thank you very much. And just for anybody who didn't know what this was, it's eco-fascists, how radical conserv uh, conservation, I could have said how radical conservatives, how radical conservationists are destroying our natural heritage. Um, uh, I've obviously heard about the book. I haven't gone out and, and acquired it myself yet, um, but it is on the list, so that just made that a lot easier. So thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you, everybody, for your great attention and good questions. Thanks.